And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. All right, folks, it's finally time for another Tradcast, the traditional Roman Catholic podcast from Novus Ordo Watch. And uh, this time, it's a special edition dedicated entirely to Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. And uh, that was released with a lot of fanfare on May 31st of last year. And boy, there is a lot to say about it. All right, so uh, welcome to episode number 27. Now, before we begin, uh, a quick warning. As you know, we live in times of coronavirus And I'm sitting very, very close to the microphone here. So you may want to move six feet away from the speaker just to ensure you're keeping a safe enough distance. Or at least make sure your antivirus software is up to date. That should work too. (laughs) All right. Well, I thought we could start off with just a little bit of humor here before we get all serious. Now... I realize that you might be asking yourself if this review of Taylor Marshall's Infiltration isn't coming a bit late, considering that the book was released just about a year ago now. And yes, you'd have a point there. But um, I did first have to find the time to get all my ducks in a row, which means I first of all, of course, needed to read the whole book and uh, take critical notes while reading. And uh, that usually involves a little bit of research. And uh, then I had to find the time to put a podcast together, all the while Chaos Frank in the Vatican is busy making an ever bigger mess of things on a daily basis. And then, of course, we had the uh, the Amazon Synod, we had the Pachamama incidents, now the coronavirus lockdown, and so on and so forth. And then there was, you know, year-end, of course, which means a lot of administrative tasks for Novus Ordo Watch which is, keep in mind, a non-profit organization. So, yeah, it was a bit of a challenge to find the time needed to put together something worthwhile on this book, all the while keeping the blog going and, you know, staying up to date with the news. And then I have to say I'm a big fan of doing things properly, okay? I'm not into sacrificing quality for the sake of quantity. If something is worth doing, it's worth doing right, and that usually takes a bit of time. Now, granted, of course, sometimes I fail in that. It's not like everything Novel Sword on Watch puts out is just perfect, but at least the general intent is always to produce high-quality content. 
All right, so let's uh, get started with part one of a review of Taylor R. Marshall's Infiltration. I say part one because in the course of preparing this podcast, I realized I was going to have to break this into two parts, okay, meaning two separate podcasts. Otherwise, this was just never going to finish. And I mean, seriously, who wants to listen to like a three and a half hour podcast, right? Okay, so let's begin with some introductory remarks. The first thing I want to say is that as a set of iconists, I'm obviously biased against the author in this theological position of recognize and resist. And it, it would be silly for me to pretend that I'm this objective third-party observer, because I'm not. Okay, nonetheless, I'm going to try very hard to make this a fair review, meaning... Uh, I'll really try to make this objective as much as possible, have all my points of criticism grounded in a, in a fair reading of the text and assessment of the facts. And I'm also going to try not to be nitpicky, okay, which is kind of hard for me, but I'll try. Let me start uh, with a general description of the work. Infiltration is a hardcover book published by Sophia Institute Press, specifically by their imprint, Crisis Publications. In the back of the book, the publisher explains, quote, Sophia Institute Press awards the privileged title Crisis Publications to a select few of our books that address contemporary issues at the intersection of politics, culture, and the church with clarity, cogency, and force, and that are also destined to become all-time classics, unquote. Now, with a description like that, the publishers set expectations pretty high. And the problem with high expectations is that it's very easy to fall short of them. And as we'll see in this and the next podcast, that's exactly what happened with Infiltration. The uh, print edition of Infiltration has a few photos in it, and the main text spans just over 243 pages, on which are printed a total of 33 chapters, followed by another 50 or so pages of various appendices, etc. Now, at 33 chapters over 243 pages, the average chapter is only about 7 pages in length. That's not wrong or anything, but I did find it odd, for example, that chapter 22, entitled Archbishop Lefebvre and the Traditionalist Resistance, is barely more than one page in length. I mean, with that chapter title, you'd expect a little more. So the extreme brevity of some of the chapters is puzzling to me, but, you know, it may have something to do with the fact that perhaps Taylor Marshall wanted the total number of chapters to come out to 33, which, lo and behold, is exactly how many numbered chapters his book has. Infiltration has been released also in electronic format and is available even as an audiobook. As of early May 2020, it's received 1,670 ratings on Amazon.com and sports basically a five-star collective rating. Uh, the actual number is 4.8 out of 5, with 88% of reviewers giving it a full five stars. How is that possible? I mean, is the book really that good? 
We'll talk about that in detail either in this or in the next podcast because Taylor, shall we say, helped facilitate that a bit ahead of release day. But before we get into all that and discuss also, of course, the content of the book, let me first give you my overall assessment in just a few sentences. This is my summarized opinion of Infiltration, the Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. I would say that this book has some merit in introducing people who are not at all familiar with what's happened to the Catholic Church in recent decades, with introducing them to the basic theme of the infiltration of the Church by diabolical forces, especially communists and Freemasons. It discusses this and related concepts and gives a basic overview of some of the main historical facts, uh, theological issues, and personalities involved. Marshall draws together many different anecdotes and historical tidbits about the infiltration and persecution of the Catholic Church, and those are valuable to know and handy to have collected in between two covers. As far as academic quality is concerned, the work is poor, very poor. Now, granted, it's not trying to be an academic book, but considering that Taylor Marshall has a PhD in philosophy, I would have expected a lot more. Okay, The biggest problem uh, in the book is very inadequate and often entirely non-existent documentation of the claims that he makes and extremely sloppy footnoting. I mean, he makes claim after claim after claim in this book, and comparatively speaking, almost none of it is backed up. The book has 307 numbered pages, and I don't know how many asserted facts, but only 181 total footnotes. Which means Taylor is telling you a lot of stories, but you would have no idea if they're actually true or not, because he's not telling you how he knows these things. For the most part, he's just not giving you sources. And that's not to say that the stories are false, not at all, only that the reader has no assurance that they're true. Because the author's mere say-so is not good enough. I mean, Taylor Marshall is not a recognized authority in church history. Okay, he's not an expert on the subject. A real and properly credentialed church historian could get away with just asserting things, but Taylor Marshall, who not too long ago was still defending Francis Amoris Letizia, by the way, can't do that. So when the publisher, Sophia Institute Press, says on its website that this book is, quote, carefully documented, uh, I'm sorry, but... I don't see how that's anything other than simply a lie. I mean, it's not carefully documented. Everything's footnoted. Yeah, right. And that was Taylor Marshall on the Right on Point podcast being interviewed by Paul and Olivia Ingracia in their episode number 104 on June 17th, 2019. Uh, the link to that whole interview is available in the show notes for this Tradcast number 27. 
And uh, you can find that remark that everything is footnoted in context at the uh, 10 minute 35 second mark of the Right on Point podcast. So, no, unfortunately, not everything is footnoted. On the contrary, only very few things are backed up. And some of the things that are documented even turn out to be inaccurate upon examination, but we'll get to that later. I'll have uh, plenty of examples. Theologically, the book is standard recognize and resist fair, and uh, the author's critique of Sedevacantism at the end reflects the rest of the book. Okay, sloppy, superficial, and in my opinion, clearly written in haste with no concern for detailed accuracy. Yes, a lot of the book, to me at least, reads like the author had to meet a deadline for publication and didn't have enough time to give everything due attention and uh, more or less left it in its uh, rough draft state. In my opinion, the book is simply a hack job, okay? Nothing to brag about. It has its usefulness, yes, but it's lacking in much documentation and is not reliable theologically and not a serious effort. Not for someone who has a doctorate in philosophy. Now, if you think I'm being too harsh here, keep in mind that this book has been advertised as though it were basically, you know, second only to the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay, so when the standard has been raised that high, I'm going to take the liberty and measure it accordingly. Well, hey, in a tweet dated May 31st, 2019, the day of the release, Marshall said of Infiltration that it is, quote, the greatest literary accomplishment of my life, unquote. Unfortunately, that tweet is no longer online, but uh, of course, I'd saved a snapshot, so I'll put that in the show notes for you at uh, tradcast.org. Scroll down to tradcast number 27 and click on that link and you'll get all the information there. Now, I can tell you right now that my reaction to him declaring that this book is the greatest literary accomplishment of his life, my reaction is quite simply, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay? And no, I'm not just trying to be unkind here. I really mean that because, as we'll see throughout this podcast, if that's the greatest thing he's ever written, then I really don't want to read his other stuff. Okay? His book is sloppy. It's partly erroneous. It lacks real theology. And uh, without much documentation, a lot of the stuff he says you simply can't rely on. It may be true. It may be false. You wouldn't know it without doing your own research. All right, now let's uh, finally go ahead and look at the content of Infiltration. And we'll begin with the foreword, which was written by Bishop Athanasius Schneider, the famous auxiliary of the Archdiocese of Santa Maria Santissima in Astana in Kazakhstan. And by the way, since uh, the topic here today is infiltration, the city of Astana, Kazakhstan, is considered to be the Illuminati capital of the world. We've got a link for you in the show notes on that. Anyway, Mr. Schneider wrote the foreword to Marshall's book, and we're going to look at that now because we have to take issue with it. Quote, 
The first infiltration in the church happened with the apostate apostle Judas Iscariot. Since then, there have been in the church intruders, priests, bishops, and even in very rare cases, popes, whom our Lord called wolves in sheep's clothing, unquote. That's from Athanasius Schneider's foreword for Infiltration, page Roman numeral 11. All right, so what's wrong here? Well, two things. First, Judas Iscariot, for all his wickedness, didn't infiltrate the Apostolic College. He was called by Christ to join him, and so he did, and eventually he fell away. That has nothing to do with infiltration, okay? It was obviously very bad, very evil, but it wasn't infiltration. Second, popes who are bad, who are immoral, are not infiltrators either. False popes are, okay? They are the ones who are truly wolves in sheep's clothing. Immoral popes, true popes that are great public sinners, are not wolves in sheep's clothing. They're not false popes. They're not infiltrators. So, at the very outset, we can see already that even the book's very main topic is being framed in a way that is inaccurate. Okay, and that simply doesn't speak well for the work in terms of credibility or quality. Okay, that's all that needs to be said uh, on this uh, with regard to Athanasius Schneider's foreword. And we'll move right uh, on to chapter 1, in which Taylor Marshall points out, quite correctly, that the enemies of Christ have wanted to establish a satanic revolution in the Catholic Church with the Pope as the devil's puppet. What he fails to mention, though, is that that is precluded by the divine promises given by Christ in Matthew 16, 18 about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church, which means, in turn, that any apparent pope under the control of Satan could not be a real pope, but would have to be, by divine guarantee, a false pope. Don't believe it? Well, here's what Pope Pius IX taught on the matter in his 1853 encyclical Inter Multiplices, number 7. Quote, now you know well that the most deadly foes of the Catholic religion have always waged a fierce war, but without success, against this chair. They are by no means ignorant of the fact that religion itself can never totter and fall while this chair remains intact, the chair which rests on the rock which the proud gates of hell cannot overthrow, and in which there is the whole and perfect solidity of the Christian religion, unquote. Now, this would have been kind of relevant for Taylor Marshall to bring up, wouldn't it? Now, I don't know why he didn't, but it's clear that it certainly contradicts his recognize and resist position, as does the remedy Pius IX prescribes in the same encyclical, the antidote for the anti-Catholic attempts to overthrow the papacy. And that is, oh shock, oh horror, complete obedience to the Holy See. Here's what the Pope says, quote, Therefore, because of your special faith in the Church and special piety toward the same chair of Peter, we exhort you 
to direct your constant efforts so that the faithful people of France may avoid the crafty deceptions and errors of these plotters and develop a more filial affection and obedience to this apostolic see. Be vigilant in act and word so that the faithful may grow in love for this holy see, venerate it, and accept it with complete obedience." They should execute whatever the sea itself teaches, determines, and decrees. Unquote. Again, that was Pope Pius IX, encyclical Inter Multiplicis, paragraph 7. Alas, instead of quoting Pius IX, Marshall goes on to quote Paul VI about the smoke of Satan having entered the church when Paul VI himself was, of course, the ripe fruit of the very infiltration Marshall laments and denounces. Oh, well. Next, uh, let's skip one chapter and move on to chapter 3, which is about Our Lady of La Salette and the secret entrusted by the Blessed Mother to Melanie Calvat. Now, I've said I'm not going to be nitpicky, so I'm not saying this is a big deal or anything, but I want to bring this up because I've said that Marshall's documentation is sloppy, and here's a clear example of that. Footnote number 12, found on page 25, says, quote, The Holy Office under Pope Benedict XV placed a reprinting of the 1879 version of The Secret on the Index of Forbidden Books, on May 9th, 1923, unquote. And what's wrong here is that the Pope in 1923 was Pius XI, not Benedict XV. He died a year earlier. Okay, again, that's no big deal. That's a mistake that can easily creep in. But it's the kind of thing that should be caught when proofreading. Okay, especially when Marshall had so many people read over his manuscript before publication. And uh, he says that in this book. And so I just want to draw attention to, to this as an example of sloppiness in this greatest literary achievement of Marshall's life. Okay, And uh, unfortunately, sloppiness in documenting sources is not the only problem in this book. As we've been saying, oftentimes the documentation is lacking altogether. For example, in chapter 6 on page 44, we find Marshall quoting Cardinal Mariano Rampolla denouncing Emperor Franz Josef of Austria's imperial intervention in the 1903 conclave as, quote, an affront to the dignity of the sacred college, unquote. Well, that's well and good, except Marshall doesn't provide any source for Cardinal Rampolla's words. I don't doubt that he said them, but if you're going to quote somebody's words verbatim, you need to put the source from which you've taken those words, okay? I mean, any senior in high school knows that, or junior probably. Uh, and Taylor Marshall, again, has a PhD in philosophy from the University of Dallas, okay? Next, uh, let's look at a different example where Marshall does give a source for a quotation, but an improper one. On page 50, Marshall quotes Pope St. Pius X speaking informally about how to deal with modernists. He said, quote, 
for they should be beaten with fists. In a duel, you don't count or measure the blows. You strike as you can, unquote. Now, that is a great quote, and it is quite accurate. But as the source for these words, Marshall gives the book Hitler's Pope by John Cornwell. This is pathetic. First of all, the book Hitler's Pope is an anti-Catholic smear job against Pope Pius XII. Not exactly the kind of book you want to be quoting from as a Catholic if you can help it. Okay. Secondly, Cornwell's book is not a primary source for these words of Pius X. Probably not even a secondary source, but more like a tertiary one. And while you can't expect Marshall to chase down the ultimate reference to whatever it might be, uh, probably the Vatican's records of the testimony given for the canonization proceedings of St. Pius X, he should at least have given the citation that Cornwell himself gives as the source for this quote. And that is Carlo Falcone's book, The Popes in the 20th Century, published in 1967. At least that book is actually on St. Pius X, in part. And uh, it is what serves as the source for John Cornwell, and it's not an anti-Catholic book. Again, Marshall is a PhD in philosophy. He knows he can't do that. He knows how to properly source and, and, and document and footnote. So this kind of outrageous sloppiness tells me that Marshall just didn't care to spend much time with his sources, probably because he was in a rush to get it done. I don't know that, that's speculation, but one thing is clear, he didn't do a careful enough job. Now, in case you're wondering how Marshall even thought of finding this quote in the book Hitler's Pope to begin with, I have a theory, okay? That book, with the corresponding page number, is listed as the source for those words of St. Pius X, where? On Wikipedia. Could it be, ladies and gentlemen, that Taylor Marshall didn't care to dig any further than Wikipedia in his research on St. Pius X? Now, Wikipedia, remember, can be edited by anyone. Like I said, pathetic. Okay, more sloppiness can be found on page 56 of Infiltration, which is part of chapter 7. Taylor Marshall says that Pope Benedict XV added the title Our Lady of Peace to the litany of Loretto. Yeah, except he didn't. The title Pope Benedict added was Queen of Peace, not Our Lady of Peace. Again, not a huge blunder or anything, but another instance of sloppiness that could easily have been avoided. Now, the letter in which Pope Benedict XV decrees that Our Lady would be invoked as Queen of Peace in the Litany of Loretto, Marshall himself actually quotes from two pages earlier on page 54. And he footnotes it wrong. Okay? He references it as a letter of April 27, 1915. But that's not correct. 
Pope Benedict's letter is dated May 5th, 1917. The title of the letter is Il 27 Aprile 1915, which translates as the 27th of April, 1915. Now, that's an odd title for a letter, I know, but in ecclesiastical documents, the title is always determined by the first few words of the text, and the Pope's first five words happen to be the 27th of April, 1915, because he starts out by referencing a letter he had written on that date. So once again, you can see that Marshall wasn't being all that careful in documenting this carefully documented work. Another example of the high quality of Taylor's work can be found on pages 56 and 57. There Marshall writes, and this is concerning Fatima, quote, Just as these visions ended with the Blessed Sacrament, so they resumed almost eight months later on the Feast of the Blessed Sacrament, May 13th, 1917. Unquote. <coughs> Wrong again. The Feast of the Blessed Sacrament, as any Catholic should know, is Corpus Christi. What is celebrated on May 13th is the Feast of Our Lady of the Blessed Sacrament. That's different. Then in Chapter 8 on the Conclave of 1922, on page 76, Marshall writes, quote, Cardinal Gaetano de Lai allegedly said to Cardinal Ratti, we will elect your eminence if your eminence will promise that you will not choose Cardinal Gaspari as your Secretary of State, unquote. And here Marshall's footnote points to David Kurtzer's book, The Pope and Mussolini. Like Cornwell, Kurtzer too is an anti-Catholic, and you just wonder why Marshall didn't try to find a Catholic source to document this quote, or at least a Catholic-friendly or a neutral source. Like, for instance, Heirs of the Fisherman by uh, John Peter Pham. I mean, it's not like Kurtzer's is the only book that has that quote. But then, of course, it is the one mentioned in Wikipedia. So maybe that has something to do with it. But to make matters worse, Marshall didn't even quote accurately. Kurtzer's book has Cardinal DeLay saying to Cardinal Ratti, who, by the way, became Pope Pius XI, we will vote for your eminence if, etc. And yet Marshall renders the quote as, we will elect your eminence if. Not only is that sloppiness, it even changes the meaning somewhat. I mean, come on, even Wikipedia got it right. Copying and pasting shouldn't be that hard. Now, I imagine there are a number of people listening right now who may be thinking, you know, Come on, what's the big deal? Well, by itself, considered as an isolated incident, sure, it may not be that big of a deal. Because we all make mistakes, that's fine. But when you consider it in connection with all the other gaffes and, and issues in his book, you really just, you can't help but conclude that Taylor Marshall wasn't putting enough effort into his greatest literary achievement. And we're not even done yet with that episode. Marshall also quotes Cardinal Ratti's response, which can likewise be found in the Kurtzer book. 
However, after that quote, he puts a footnote to Thomas Rees's book, Inside the Vatican, and references page 94 there. So you get the impression that the quote of Rati's response is found on page 94 of the Rees book. Except it's not. See, the book doesn't give any quote of either Cardinal Delay or Cardinal Rati. Instead, it simply mentions that Cardinal Gaspari's supporters ended up voting for Rati, and in that way Gaspari was able to remain Secretary of State. Now, I'm sure it's complete coincidence that the Wikipedia entry for the Conclave of 1922 also references the Reese book right after the Kurtzer book, right? In any case, Taylor Marshall's footnoting is a mess. Keep that in mind next time someone tells you that an infiltration... Everything's footnoted. Man, this has been exhausting. Hey, why don't we take a quick break? I'm sure you're ready for one, too. And uh, we'll be back here in just a few moments with more about Taylor Marshall's hack job, Infiltration. It's not just a podcast. It's It's a a Trapcast. Trapcast. What is true restoration, and why is it the answer for you and the Catholic world at large? On no other internet platform can you access a treasury of Catholic educational material, mostly in audio format, covering such courses as the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas, Catholic Spirituality, Sacred Scripture, Catholic History, Papal Encyclicals, The True Nature and Consequence of the Second Vatican Council, and much, much more. Most talks, videos, and transcripts are designed by leading clerics of our time, many of whom are lecturers in the world's top English-speaking traditional Catholic seminary, to provide the most beneficial information for our times. The interviews are delivered in a specific style to be captivating and comfortably understood by the average layman, and True Restoration's extensive repository collectively provides all that is required for acquiring the most comprehensive religious online education. With the option of full annual membership or monthly subscription, you can easily access this unique and extensive, spiritually enriching and deeply instructive knowledge base to aid your journey to true wisdom and understanding. For Catholic teaching at its best online, visit truerestoration.org. That's T-R-U-E, as in the one true faith, R-E-S-T-O-R-A-T-I-O-N, as in to restore all things in Christ, If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Trapcast.
All right, we're back again with more Trapcast, the traditional Catholic podcast made by, we're not afraid to say it, Sede Vacantists. The people who are not more Catholic than the Pope, only more Catholic than the anti-Pope. All right, this is Tratcast number 27, a special edition Tratcast dedicated entirely to reviewing Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, the Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. Okay, now we'll move on to chapter 9. On page 89 of his book, Marshall talks about Annibale Bunini, the chief creator of the New Mass and the New Sacraments. After presenting some anecdotal evidence that Bonini was, in fact, a member of the Masonic Lodge, Marshall says, quote, This became a scandal in Rome, and Pope Paul VI was forced to send his chief liturgist and recently minted archbishop to Iran as pronuncio, a surprising and obvious demotion and exile, unquote. Now, that is indeed what is commonly said, and in my opinion, it's probably true. But here I just want to add that it is actually not quite so certain that that was the reason Paul VI sent him to Iran, even though it may appear that way. In the book Annibale Bonini, Reformer of the Liturgy, that was published in English in 2018, author Yves Sharon discusses this topic, and on page 174, he concludes, quote, Whatever the case may be, this accusation of belonging to Freemasonry was not the determining factor in Archbishop Bonini's dismissal, unquote. And uh, he presents other reasons for why Paul VI may have done that. So, I just wanted to point that out for people interested in the details uh, of that case. And I'm not even faulting Taylor Marshall here. I just wanted to let people know that it's not quite so certain if Paul VI exiled him to Iran for being a Freemason or whether he did so for other reasons. However, there is something to fault Taylor Marshall for here as well. On page 90, he writes, quote, When the Italian Masonic Registry was released in 1976, Annibale Bonini's name was found on the Masonic Register, along with his Freemasonic codename Buon, unquote. Now, Marshall puts a footnote here and provides his source for that. And what do you think his source is? I mean, we're talking here about something rather significant. The Masonic Register revealing that the chief architect of the new mass of Paul VI was a member of Freemasonry. What source did Marshall get this from? What does he provide as documentation for this claim? No, it's not Wikipedia this time. Get this. His source is the book Most Asked Questions about the Society of St. Pius X. <laughs> you can't make it up. And then he doesn't even provide the year of publication, which would have been useful since uh, there have been a number of editions of this book, and the 1997 edition that I have doesn't mention that on the page indicated. 
Now, I'm not disputing that Bunini's Masonic codename was Buon, or at least that that's what was reported in the press back in the 70s. I'm not disputing any of that. No, the point is that you cannot use a book about the Society of St. Pius X as your evidence for that. That is utterly ridiculous. And with a PhD in philosophy, Taylor Marshall knows that. All right, the next thing I want to take issue with is found in chapter 10 on page 95, footnote number 56. Marshall quotes Pope Pius XII when he was still Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli speaking to Count Enrico Galeazzi. And this is taken from the book Pie le Douzième devant l'Histoire, which translates as Pius XII before history. Cardinal Pacelli says, quote, I am concerned by the Blessed Virgin's messages to Lucia of Fatima. Mary's persistence about the dangers that menace the church is a divine warning against the suicide of altering the faith in her liturgy, her theology, and her soul. I hear all around me innovators who wish to dismantle the sacred chapel, destroy the universal flame of the church, reject her ornaments, and make her feel remorse for her historical past. A day will come when the civilized world will deny its God, when the church will doubt as Peter doubted. She will be tempted to believe that man has become God. In our churches, Christians will search in vain for the red lamp where God awaits them. Like Mary Magdalene, weeping before the empty tomb, they will ask, Where have they taken him? Unquote. Now, that quote is fairly well known, and uh, though Marshall does reference the correct and original source, he doesn't give the name or location of the publisher, which is standard practice, and he also doesn't mention who translated the passage, which would have been nice since the book he's quoting from is written in French. So, Again, he's being sloppy, and by now we can see that Marshall's sloppiness isn't isolated to a few rare cases. It's all throughout the book. See, when someone pays that little attention to sources, it simply makes you wonder what's going on, especially because here we're talking about a book that isn't worth much without source documentation, right? I mean, what good is it to narrate things about an infiltration of the Catholic Church if, in the end, it's all just based on your say-so. For a book like this, documentation is crucial. Because even if you're right in everything you say, unless you're documenting it, people wouldn't know it's right, as we said in the first segment. So, that's the reason why I'm attaching so much importance to Marshall's abysmal documentation practices. It matters. It's crucial to provide good sources. Everything's footnoted. Ah, yes. Thanks. And with that comment, Taylor actually reveals that he knows very much how important proper documentation is, because otherwise it's just Taylor telling stories, and I don't think too many people would be interested in that. Oh, and then regarding this quote of Cardinal Pacelli to Count Galeazzi, in one of his many interviews about his book, Marshall said that some people disputed the authenticity of this quote, and he emphasized how he located the original source for that. And I was really puzzled when I heard that, because it's not like that was particularly difficult to find. 
I mean, it shouldn't take you more than three minutes on Google and you'll have the original source. And even before the internet was as big and as widely used as it is today, that source was given in the pertinent literature, like in Chris Ferreira and Tom Woods' book, The Great Facade, published in 2002. Uh, there you'll find it referenced on page 7 and uh, again on page 60, for instance. That was 18 years ago. So it's not like Marshall pulled off this tremendous find of some mysterious hidden work. So I found that really odd that he acted like he had, you know, whoa, uh, located the real source. That source has been around. All right, let's move on to chapter 11, which is about Pius XII as the Pope of Fatima. On page 98, Marshall quotes from the second secret of Fatima as follows, quote, When you see a knight illumined by an unknown light, know that this is the great sign given you by God that he is about to punish the world for its crimes by means of war, famine, and persecutions of the Church and of the Holy Father. To prevent this, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the Church. The good will be martyred, the Holy Father will have much to suffer, various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me, and she shall be converted, and a period of peace will be granted to the world. Unquote. Now, leaving out of account the fact that the source Marshall references is only a secondary source, meaning it in turn quotes another source, and aside from the fact that Marshall didn't even transcribe the quote accurately, he uh, changed punctuation and added a word. Leaving all of that out of account, I want to draw your attention to the fact that Marshall obviously didn't pay close enough attention to Our Lady's words here, because Our Lady here speaks of persecutions of the Church and of the Holy Father, and she says that the Holy Father will have much to suffer. Now, if you look at the so-called popes of the Vatican II sect, they didn't have much to suffer, did they? And they certainly weren't the object of persecution. Rather, they caused much suffering, especially Francis. They have been the ones to persecute the church by changing the Catholic religion, changing the faith, the mass, the sacraments, and causing untold spiritual suffering for souls. So this is one major part of Fatima that the recognize and resist traditionalists like Marshall, like John Salza, Chris Ferreira, and others always seem to gloss over. During the great apostasy, the Pope is persecuted. He doesn't do the persecuting, okay? He endures much suffering. He doesn't cause suffering for Catholics, and certainly not with regard to their faith or their spiritual health. All right, then uh, for chapter 12, we hear about Annibale Bonini again. 
Okay, on page 103, Marshall writes that, quote, In 1948, Pius XII appointed the controversial priest, Father Annibale Bonini, to the Commission for Liturgical Reform, unquote. Yes, Pius XII did do that, but Marshall doesn't say whether or not Bonini was controversial already back then, if he was known to be controversial. Uh, and if so, why? Okay, so it's not clear whether he's faulting the Pope or, or what. I mean, is he saying that Pius XII did know or could have known, should have known that Bonini was a bad apple? Or is he saying that Bonini didn't reveal himself to be a liturgical recovator until some time later? What's Marshall saying? We're not told. He just states that Pius XII appointed the controversial Bonini. Then on pages 104 and 105, Marshall makes a whole bunch of claims about Pius XII's revision of the Holy Saturday Easter Vigil, but without offering any proof for what he's saying. So, for instance, he's criticizing the transfer of the Easter Vigil from the morning to the night, and he makes arguments against that, but he doesn't back any of it up. So, for example, he claims that the people Pius XII had put in charge of looking into revising the Easter Vigil, quote, concluded that they would need to rewrite the entire Holy Saturday Mass to conform Holy Saturday to this nighttime slot, unquote. <laughs> well, okay, maybe so, but he sure doesn't give any evidence for it. No documentation, nothing. It's the same old problem we see recur in his book again and again. The reader is simply being asked to believe Marshall, to trust him. Well, for a book on the infiltration of the Catholic Church that's supposedly carefully documented, I'm sorry, but that's not good enough. Now, when Pope Pius XII made changes to Holy Week in 1955, he called his revisions a restoration. Pius XII's revised order of Holy Week is therefore called the Restored Holy Week. On page 104 of his book, Marshall comments, quote, Sadly, Pope Pius XII unwisely chose Father Annibale Bonini to accomplish a restoration of something that never previously existed. Unquote. Now, if he wants to argue that, that may be fine for him to do, but then he's going to have to provide evidence. And then he'd also have to interact with evidence brought up to the contrary. For example, in the April 1957 edition of the American Ecclesiastical Review, Father John H. Miller published an article entitled The History and Spirit of Holy Week, which explains the restored vigil of Pius XII from a historical perspective. If Marshall thinks that's bogus, he needs to address the evidence and refute it. Instead, he just makes claims, like he does with the issue of concelebration. On page 105, he writes that Father Bonini convinced Pius XII to permit concelebration in 1956. But again, no evidence given. It's just a claim. So, Marshall basically leaves it to the reader to do his research. Marshall asserts, and then the reader gets to figure out if what he says is true. Awesome. Of course, that modus operandi continues also in chapter 13. On page 107, Marshall says about Pius XII, quote, His friends and acquaintances noted a drastic change in his personality beginning in 1954. 
unquote. Again, that may be true or it may be false. I have no idea. It would have been really great if Marshall had given us a source for that claim, but of course he didn't. That would have taken real work, you know, real painful research. It's much easier to just assert, lean back and claim everything's footnoted. And I'm not even disputing it. I'm just saying he needs to prove it. Now, some might say that that's not serious enough of a claim to require documentation. Okay, but then how about this one? On page 108, referring to Giovanni Battista Montini, the future Paul VI, Marshall says that, quote, in effect, it was Montini who ran the Holy See and the Papacy from 1955 until the death of Pius XII in 1958, unquote. That's quite a claim, especially considering that Montini was the Archbishop of Milan at that point. Evidence given by Marshall, none. On the same page, talking about the Third Secret of Fatima, Marshall writes, quote, When the Third Secret came to the Vatican, it was placed in a safe in the papal apartments, as shown in a photograph in Paris Match magazine. Unquote. While there, the author is at least doing us the favor of identifying the magazine, the volume and edition, year of publication, and page number would have been nice to know as well, but... Yeah, that's kind of absent. On page 111, Marshall notes that, quote, the confessor of Pope Pius XII had been the stalwart Thomist theologian Michel-Louis Gerard de Laurier, OP, who had helped to write the 1950 dogmatic decree on the bodily assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, unquote. I believe that is correct, not that he provides any documentation for it, but what I find interesting here is that although he lauds Father Gerard de Laurier as a stalwart Thomist, he fails to mention that that great thinker eventually became a sedevacantist and was consecrated a bishop in 1981. I just thought that that would have been nice to mention. Likewise, on page 111, Marshall refers to the Vatican II declaration Nostra Etate as, quote, the controversial document on the new ecumenism, unquote. Yeah, except that the Vatican II decree on ecumenism is unitatis red integratio. What Marshall is talking about here, Nostra Etate, is the declaration of the church to non-Christian religions. That's interreligious dialogue, not ecumenism. Well, the two are related, but they're not the same thing. See, when an author fails to understand such basic distinctions, he's just not helping his credibility. Next, uh, we're going to skip to chapter 15, where Marshall claims that when John XXIII announced his intention to convoke an ecumenical council, the conservative cardinals Ernesto Ruffini and Alfredo Ottaviani supported the idea. Now, that's the first I ever heard that, which doesn't mean it's not true, of course. But again, Marshall doesn't provide any evidence, so you're being asked to simply believe him. Sorry, Taylor, not good enough. Then in chapter 16 on Vatican II, Marshall writes, quote, Devout Catholics often defend Vatican II by saying that it was hijacked, and that is certainly the case, but the question is when and by whom. As will become clear, 
Pope John XXIII and his favorites, Bonini, Bea, and Montini, had already set the optimistic New Order or Novus Ordo agenda. Bonini would create the Novus Ordo liturgy, Bea would create Novus Ordo ecumenism and primacy of conscience over dogma, and Montini would become the Novus Ordo Pope, unquote. And that's uh, from pages 127 and 128. When I first read that, I thought to myself, oh, that's interesting. So Marshall believes the new church gave him a false liturgy, a false ecumenism, but a true pope. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Everything Novus Ordo is false except the pope. He's definitely real and legit. Couldn't possibly be fake. Got it. Moving on to chapter 19, and you can see I'm skipping here because the chapters are fairly short and we need to get through this. Chapter 19 is entitled Theological Infiltration of Vatican II, and it talks about how the new theologians such as Karl Rahner had a major impact on the Council's theology. But the odd thing is that Marshall calls it an infiltration when, of course, these new theologians, with all their crazy ideas, had been officially appointed by John XXIII to participate in the council. In other words, they had been invited to be there, okay? And so they showed up. That's not infiltration. By definition, infiltration is secret or deceptive. Rahner didn't infiltrate the council. He was ordered to go to it by a man Marshall believes was the Pope, John XXIII. I mean, he says so himself on page 137. John XXIII appointed Rahner as a paritas, or expert, at Vatican II. Marshall says that. So he really can't speak of infiltration here. And he can't speak of theological infiltration either, since the theology of Karl Rahner was not a secret. In fact, Marshall himself says on that same page that the new theologians that engineered the council had been suspect of heresy under Pope Pius XII. So, to speak of infiltration with regard to Vatican II is wrong. It wasn't an infiltration of the council. It was an invitation to it, given by John XXIII that the new theologians happily accepted. Now, it's true that they hijacked the council, in a sense, because they were able to get all the preparatory work junked and replaced it with their own theology, but hijacking and infiltration are two different things. So here Marshall is continuing the false notion of infiltration that was introduced by Athanasius Schneider in the book's foreword when talking about Judas having supposedly infiltrated the church that we talked about earlier in the first segment. Still on the same page, page 137, and going into page 138, Marshall writes, quote, Rahner introduced a new ecclesiology in which the Church of Christ is not the Catholic Church, but rather subsists in the Catholic Church. This seems to contradict the teaching of Pope Pius XII in his 1943 encyclical Mystici Corporis that the mystical body of Christ and the Catholic Church are one and the same entity, unquote. Yeah, except that the subsists-in formulation wasn't introduced by Karl Rahner. It was introduced by the Dutch Jesuit Father Sebastian Tromp. 
Come on, even Wikipedia says that. But don't take my word for it, or Wikipedia's. Anyone who seriously researches this will quickly find that it was Father Trump who came up with that formulation. And that is actually quite tragic, because Trump was not a modernist. He was orthodox. He was part of the Ottaviani Fenton camp. In fact, and this is incredibly ironic, Father Trump had been the ghostwriter of Pope Pius XII's magnificent encyclical on the church, Mystici Corporis. And that goes to show that even a brilliant theologian can come up with an idea to solve a difficulty and be unaware of its wide-ranging consequences. In this case, the theologian proposed wording that is actually subversive of the true doctrine. Anyway, the long and the short of it is, the subsists in clause of Vatican II's Lumen Gentium does not come from Karl Rahner, as Taylor Marshall claims, but from Sebastian Trump. And you will find that, for example, in the article Subsisted in Non-Exclusive Identity or Full Identity by Christopher Malloy, published in the Thomist, Volume 72, issue number 1, January 2008. You can also find it in the article Salvation and the Church, Fini Fenton and the Making of Lumen Gentium, by Gerdjan Zudvecht, published in Louvain Studies, volume 37, pages 147 to 178. And lastly, you can find it too in the article Hec Ecclesia Subsistit in Ecclesia Catholica, the subsistence of the Church of Christ as a starting point toward Catholic unity, by Reverend Nicola Derpich, uh, published in Alpha Omega Volume 21, number 2, in 2018. Now, for all those interested, we have linked these articles in the show notes for you, so you can do what Taylor Marshall clearly didn't do, and that is real research. Although I'm not encouraging anyone to actually read these articles because, you know, they're all written by Novus Ordos, so... I'm just linking them as documentation that Taylor Marshall's greatest literary achievement is not quite so great. You can access the notes for this show at tradcast.org. Just scroll down to tradcast number 27 and click on that link. Continuing now, we're not uh, done yet with page 137 of Marshall's book. He writes, quote, Cardinal Ottaviani attempted to convince Pius XII to excommunicate Rahner on three occasions, all to no avail, unquote. Now, for that specific and significant of a claim, can you guess what evidence the author provides? You got it. Absolutely none. Taylor, once again, just wants you to believe him. I know this is getting old. All right, skipping ahead to page 143. Marshall says, quote, Pope Paul VI promulgated Dignitatis Humanae on December 7, 1965, and the next day he closed the Second Vatican Council and stated, The magisterium of the Church did not wish to pronounce itself under the form of extraordinary dogmatic pronouncements. This effectively hamstrung the Council. 
It's true that theological statements are made throughout the conciliar documents, yet the council made no extraordinary dogmatic pronouncements. Nothing binding came from Vatican II. Paul VI clarified this a little over one month later when he explained, In view of the pastoral nature of the council, it has avoided proclaiming in an extraordinary manner any dogma carrying the mark of infallibility. By a divine miracle, the Pope of Vatican II taught that Vatican II contained no extraordinary dogma and did not carry the mark of infallibility, meaning the documents of Vatican II are fallible and may contain error. Unlike the previous 20 ecumenical councils, the Pope placed an asterisk next to Vatican II. Unquote. Oh man. Where to begin? First of all, the quote from Paul VI that the magisterium of the church did not wish to pronounce itself under the form of extraordinary dogmatic pronouncements is not from the closing speech the day after December 7th, but is from the closing speech given on December 7th. There were actually two closings. Because on December 7th, Paul VI closed the fourth session of the council, and on December 8th, he closed the council altogether. And the funny thing is that Marshall actually got it right in the footnote this time. He just didn't get it right in the text. What a mess. Uh, secondly, although the quote Marshall gives is accurate, it's only a partial quote, but he doesn't indicate that. He makes it look as though he were quoting the entire sentence. And get this, the portion he omitted contradicts what he claims. And we'll look at the full quote in just a minute, but first I want to mention that the second quote of Paul VI that Marshall provides suffers from the exact same problem. The words are quoted accurately, but the sentence is truncated, and the portion he left out contradicts the point he's making. So you really have to ask yourself, how did this man get a PhD in philosophy? I mean, you do that in your doctoral dissertation and it's over, okay? You can kiss your PhD goodbye. All right, so let's look at the full quotes now. Remember, Marshall is saying that Paul VI, by a divine miracle or divine providence, said at the end of Vatican II that, hey, the council isn't infallible, isn't binding, and he basically issued one gigantic disclaimer, right? An asterisk. That's what Marshall is saying. Now, here is what Paul VI actually said. And yes, we have that linked in the show notes for you, so you can look it up yourself. Quote, But one thing must be noted here, namely that the teaching authority of the Church, even though not wishing to issue extraordinary dogmatic pronouncements, has made thoroughly known its authoritative teaching on a number of questions which today weigh upon man's conscience and activity, descending, so to speak, into a dialogue with him, but ever preserving its own authority and force. It has spoken with the accommodating, friendly voice of pastoral charity. Its desire has been to be heard and understood by everyone." It has not merely concentrated on intellectual understanding, but has also sought to express itself in simple, up-to-date, conversational style derived from actual experience 
and a cordial approach which make it more vital, attractive, and persuasive. It has spoken to modern man as he is, unquote. That's the first quote from the closing speech of the fourth session of the Council, December 7, 1965, taken straight from the Vatican website. The next quote is from Paul VI speaking at his general audience on January 12, 1966. Quote, Some people have asked what authority, what theological qualification the Council intended to attribute to its teaching since it clearly avoided issuing solemn dogmatic definitions that would involve the infallibility of the magisterium. The answer is clear for anyone who recalls the council declaration issued on March 6, 1964 and repeated on November 16, 1964. In view of the pastoral nature of the council, it avoided any extraordinary statement of dogmas that would be endowed with the note of infallibility, but it still provided its teaching with the authority of the supreme ordinary magisterium. This ordinary magisterium, which is so obviously official, has to be accepted with docility and sincerity by all the faithful in accordance with the mind of the council on the nature and aims of the individual documents." Unquote. And uh, that translation appeared in The Pope Speaks, Volume 11, Number 2, Spring 1966, on pages 152 to 154. Now, given what you just heard Paul VI actually said, do you still think that Taylor Marshall is justified in saying that nothing binding came from Vatican II? Hardly. And it gets worse. Taylor didn't tell you, probably because he didn't know, because he didn't do enough research, he didn't tell you that at the end of each of the 16 documents issued by Vatican II, Paul VI solemnly included the following words, quote, What has been set down in this constitution, or decree or declaration, whatever type of document it was, what has been set down in this Constitution has been accepted by the Fathers of the Sacred Council in its entirety and in all its parts. And, together with the Venerable Council Fathers, we, by the apostolic power granted to us by Christ, approve, decree, and establish it, and we order that what has thus been established in Synod be promulgated for the glory of God." Unquote. So, anyone who believes that Paul VI was a true pope, like Taylor Marshall, for example, is obliged to affirm that every jot and tittle of the council has been established in the Catholic Church by the Vicar of Christ with his apostolic authority for the glory of God. Now, some will say that they've never seen these words of Paul VI at the end of any Vatican II document. And that may be because they're not always included in the body of the text because they're the formula of promulgation, and some editions, instead of repeating them for each document, simply mention them only once in the introduction. So, for example, Father Walter Abbott's The Documents of Vatican II 
mentions the formula of promulgation at the end of each document, whereas Father Austin Flannery's Vatican Council II, the conciliar and post-conciliar documents, does not include the formula with each document, but instead just mentions in the introduction, page Roman numeral 20, that each document ends that way. And if you look at the Vatican website, which also has the documents of Vatican II, you will actually find that they've included the formula for some of the documents, but not for others. Yeah, whatever. So, now you know the rest of the story, and you can see what Taylor Marshall's research is worth. Truncated sentences, omitted relevant facts, distorted evidence. Not good. Looks to me like we're going to have to put an asterisk next to Taylor Marshall. Back to infiltration. On page 145, Marshall talks about the reform of the reform, without so much as explaining what that term even means or what it's about. It basically means taking the liturgical reform of Paul VI, the, the new mass, and reforming that, and this time in a more conservative more traditional direction, in line with what its proponents believe is the true spirit of Vatican II. In other words, put some Latin back in the new Mass, have the presider face the tabernacle instead of the people, more reverence, and so on. That's what's typically understood by reform of the reform, but you wouldn't know it from reading Infiltration. Chapter 20 on the Infiltration of the Sacred Liturgy. On pages 147 and 148, Marshall first quotes from St. Pius X's motu proprio Tra le Solicitudini of 1903 as follows, quote, Filled as we are with a most ardent desire to see the true Christian spirit flourish in every respect and be preserved by all the faithful, we deem it necessary to provide before anything else for the sanctity and dignity of the temple in which the faithful assemble for no other object than that of acquiring this spirit from its foremost and indispensable font, which is the active participation in the most holy mysteries and in the public and solemn prayer of the Church. Unquote. So that's Pius X. Now Marshall comments as follows. Quote, Liturgical scholars note that this is the first historical exhortation to active participation of the laity in the liturgy. The text, however, has been exaggerated in the Italian translation, which reads partecipazione attiva, and also in the English version, which reads active participation. In the original Latin version of the text, the qualifier active is nowhere present, Que est participatio divinorum mysteriorum, or which is the participation in the divine mysteries. The idea of active participation is not the official Latin version of the text. It has been added. Unquote. Now, if that doesn't sound like Marshall did some great research there, huh? Yeah, well, he may have done some research, but it wasn't enough, because it just so happens that when you look the stuff up in the official Vatican documents, you find out that this motu proprio was written in Italian, not in Latin. 
The Latin is the translation. So when he says that the phrase active participation doesn't appear in the original and was exaggerated by the translators, that's false. It does appear in the Italian original. If anything, it was toned down for the translation in Latin. It should have been obvious that Tra le Solicitudini was originally written in Italian and not in Latin because the title is Italian. That's not a Latin title. And Marshall knows it because as a PhD in philosophy, he knows Latin. Remember how we said earlier that the title of a papal document is always determined by the first few words? Well, that's the case here, too. And those words are Italian. And you find that also in other documents, such as Pius X's Notre Charge Apostolique, Our Apostolic Mandate, which was written in French, or in Pius XI's Mit Brennender Sorge, With Burning Concern, which was written in German. Then, if you look at Marshall's source citation on this, which is sloppy as always, he points you to page 388 of the Acta Sancte Sedis. Of course, without giving you the volume number, but uh, it's volume 36. And when you go there, when you look that up, you see the Latin text of this motu proprio begins on page 387, and there is a footnote there, which is kind of hard to miss. And that footnote says, quote, The official text written in Italian appears in this same volume on page 329. Unquote. So there you have it. Not only is the Italian the original language the document was written in, it is also the official version of the text. The Latin is just a translation and not normative. So that torpedoes Marshall's entire argument about active participation not being found in the original and official version of Pius X's motu proprio tra le solicitudini. Well, sometimes it's a good idea to actually read the sources you reference. All right, I'm exhausted. Uh, we're only about halfway through the book, but um, I think I'm beginning to understand why this is a crisis publication. Taylor Marshall has no idea what he's doing. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll continue our review of Infiltration by Dr. Taylor Marshall in the next episode, Tratcast 28, to be released very shortly. In the meantime, please help us get the word out and share this podcast with as many as possible. Until then, God bless you.